Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Today on the podcast, we're going to discuss the topic of pediatric cancer treatment abandonment with an amazing guest and one of the leading researchers in this area, Dr. Paula Friedrich. Paula is on the faculty at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and she serves in the St. Jude Global Pediatric Medicine Department as a director for the Mexico region. She received her MD from the Puerto Rico School of Medicine and a master's in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health. Her research interests include improving childhood cancer outcomes in low- and middle-income countries with a focus on metrics, health systems, and priority setting. She also has expertise in the role of health disparities and social determinants of health, as well as in the world of solid tumors. She has many publications in these areas and has won numerous awards, such as the Latino Achiever Award from the Latino Heritage Committee during her time at Boston Children's Hospital. Let me say... Paula really is one of the leading thinkers in the area of care delivery within global oncology. She is very experienced providing care in a variety of contexts, and it shows in how thoughtfully she approaches these subjects. She also has a personal investment in this area, too. As you'll hear in the course of our conversation, she herself is a childhood cancer survivor who was diagnosed in Mexico. She's one of those people, when you talk to her, it's easy to sense the genuine compassion that she has for cancer patients in similar to situations as her. So the background to our conversation is that Paula also serves as the co-chair of the International Society of Pediatric Oncology Treatment Abandonment Working Group, along with Nuria Russell, who you'll actually hear from on the podcast in a few weeks. The working group hosted a symposium about treatment abandonment at the SIOP 2018 Annual Congress, which is the annual meeting in Kyoto, Japan. I was able to sit down with Paula at the conference venue to have a conversation, and we actually ended up sitting outside. So during the course of the conversation, you'll actually hear some birds chirps and some conference goers walk by, and it just provides some really good ambiance. You'll feel like you're there. Anyway, all right, enough introduction. Here's my conversation with Dr. Paula Friedrich. Hey, so I'm here with Paula Friedrich. We're actually outside right now um, in SIOP at the Annual Congress 2018, so we're in Kyoto, Japan. It's beautiful outside. The colors are just absolutely phenomenal, and the venue is amazing. and Paula has been gracious enough to give us some time. So we really appreciate it. Welcome, Paula. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm glad to be here. All right. And so, as I've said, we're going to talk about treatment abandonment today. And I think what we really want to do is go over what we know so far, like what are the basics of treatment abandonment? Because that naturally leads into how do we fix it? Because that's really, I think, the, um, the question that's on everybody's mind at this point or needs to be on our mind is how do we really fix it? And um, you just gave a really good session yesterday, actually, about abandonment at SIOP, and it was pretty well received. So um, congrats on that. That (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, So we're going to kind of recapitulate a little bit of what she talked about in that session uh, and explore a little more some of these concepts. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what first captured your attention about treatment abandonment or why is this taking up a good deal of your professional attention? So I um, I started some of my work in global pediatric oncology um, in Central America, uh, working with a, an association called the Central American Pediatric Hematology Oncology Association. And we were looking at the reasons for treatment failure, sort of for not good outcomes for patients with sarcomas, which are sort of bone or muscle tumors. 
And um, Central, they had a, a legacy, many, many years of working um, with uh, twinning collaborations and with partners all over the world. And they had actually seen treatment abandonment rates go down for many of their patients with leukemia and many of the other patients. But one of the things that they were seeing all the time was that uh, the outcomes were not good for patients with solid tumors and that one of the reasons was treatment abandonment. Um, and that despite all the things, all the efforts they had done to decrease treatment abandonment, this was a, a population that was not necessarily seeing the benefits of the interventions delivered so far. So, so they, had, they had intervened in other yes, diseases. Yes, for leukemia. If they looked at their treatment abandonment for all patients, mm -hmm. it had been steadily going down. Mm -hmm. But when you divided those numbers by diagnosis, you could see that those benefits were more for the patients with leukemias and lymphomas and not necessarily for the patients with solid tumors. Interesting. And so that really got me thinking about uh, what are the reasons of treatment abandonment? And I had to understand, I had to first understand the concept. Mm -hmm. And then because I was doing an outcomes research study, I had to understand how to measure it mm -hmm. and how to actually describe it in a way that I could, uh, from a biostats standpoint, uh, also make sense of what I was trying to describe. So that really got me. Um, and I think you, hopefully you'll hear also at some point from Raman Aurora, but I presented my first uh, poster as a fellow mm -hmm. uh, during SIOP in 2010. And he was the, the person that was sort of leading the session, like he was moderating the session. And he found my poster very interesting and reached out to me. And he was just about to form this working group on treatment abandonment. So he invited me to join and, you know, fresh, fresh, you know, in fellowship. I was just amazed that someone would take interest in what I was doing and was really excited to join um, during those sessions. And, and that's how I got into it. I, it wasn't necessarily where I started. I was more thinking about sort of treatment outcomes for patients with solid tumors. And this was one piece of a puzzle, um, but I then got a chance to really go deep into it. Wow. Okay. Did you figure out the answer for the solid tumor puzzle? Um, for the solid tumor puzzle, I think it has a lot to do with, um, especially in sarcomas, with the, the issue of mutilating surgeries. So it's very challenging um, in a, when, when you don't have yet sort of a high level of trust in the medical system mm -hmm. and you have a society that does not necessarily um, react well to things like amputations and disability. Um, to bring the conversation with a family about a treatment that will require a mutilating surgery um, makes the adherence or so the acceptance of treatment that much harder. And so that led us for many years to try to look at ways to improve access to limb sparing surgeries and alternatives because we could realize we realized that it was just very challenging. It was really beyond socioeconomics for them. It wasn't just about not being able to make it to the hospital. It was just the fear of a mutilating surgery. All right, very good. I think we might come back to that in a little bit, mm -hmm. but let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so um, this concept of treatment abandonment, I guess, has been around for a while. Um, can you tell us about kind of the development of knowledge so far? Yeah. And so I think that sort of 2010 uh, point was an important one for me, but I think it was an important one for all of us that work on treatment abandonment. Before that time point, um, we had a lot of single institution studies. This means one institution had sort of written an abstract where they highlighted this as a problem and they identified some of the risk factors for this, you know, travel time or gender or geography or things like that. Uh, but these were mostly kind of abstracts in SIOP, um, a few papers, but there was not necessarily a lot of uh, detail of, or a lot of things that could be sort of 
taken across. And actually, it was Rahman who wrote some of the first reviews around this and then gathered as um, SIOP was developed developing PODC, the Program for Developing Countries, and developed this treatment abandonment working group. Then that sort of led us from 2010 on to, um, as scholars, to really try to think about how to define this, how to, you know, how to really think about the determinants from a global standpoint, and how to measure it, how to address it. So I think that was sort of the time, you know, turning point for every everyone that he recruited to this working group, um, me included, uh, to really sort of start thinking about treatment abandonment, um, not just not just as, as what the, the way it occurs in one institution, but what is this as a phenomenon? What is this as something that we as a global community need to, need to try to address? So prior to 2010, mm-hmm. there were just individual people doing individual studies and then it really started to coalesce with the forming of the working group thanks to Rahman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then since then I guess there's been some formalization on the concepts. Exactly. All right, very good. So what have we formalized since then? So one of the early works here, as early as 2011, was to actually have a position statement on what this is and why it matters. And this was actually uh, primarily written um, by Saskia uh, Mustard and then sort of endorsed by everyone in the working group. And what we did was basically sort of state what treatment abandonment is. And it is basically an interruption in care that lasts for more than four weeks that is not related to the toxic effects of therapy. It really is because the family has not made it back to the hospital. Um, and that, and it's not really for medical reasons, it's for psychosocial reasons. And uh, one important piece of the puzzle from the beginning is that we were, uh, talk, when we talk about treatment abandonment, is about uh, abandoning treatment for curative purposes. Uh, if a patient is um, expected to need to start palliative care, we didn't. We were not including that into the definition, um, and we were identifying very early that this was a very common phenomenon. We were seeing it very often in the institutions, and that. Um, but I think what probably the key point of that position statement is that very very early on we wanted to put it out there that this was not a problem of the family that this was not something to blame the family nor the physician this was a systems issue a health systems issue and and that we actually wanted to solve it from a health systems standpoint yeah i feel like some people can feel the term is quite loaded that yes it's very loaded so do you have to be careful with how you kind of phrase it Yes, we often have to explain that it's. Uh, we don't mean that the parents are abandoning the child at the hospital. That's not what treatment abandonment means. Um, it means that the family makes a decision not to pursue any more curative therapy at a time point where cure is still highly likely. And this is something that is very challenging for many of us to grasp. Um, but what we've learned is that there are many, many, many reasons, and some of them many good reasons that fam- you know that lead families to something like this. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to chase a rabbit trail just a mm-hmm. little bit because you said yesterday in your talk that um, you know abandonment is any time after diagnosis. If you're gone any time for treatment after mm-hmm. diagnosis for more than four weeks, is that correct? Yes. So even upfront before you know quote unquote treatment has started, mm-hmm. if people leave after receiving the diagnosis, that's considered abandonment. Yes. So that's usually what we call refusal. Uh, and I guess it was sort of a matter of not making the term even longer. But yes, treatment abandonment is meant to include both refusal of treatment, so not even starting for a variety of reasons, or starting and then stopping before you're actually uh, com- 
treatment completion has happened. Um, and so those two phenomenons are meant to um, be captured by the same term, treatment abandonment. Uh, what we know is that, of course, the reasons are actually different and some of the strategies to address them are different. Ultimately, the reason we decided to collapse it into the term treatment abandonment is because in both of those situations, sadly, the expectation is that the child will die um, because you have not received enough treatment to be able to control the disease. And we know cancer is a disease that without treatment uh, leads to death. And so that was sort of part of the reason to combine them um, because we know that, that it, it has the same outcome. Um, so it, it has, of course, and it's a very loaded, uh, and, and we often say sort of treatment abandonment is sort of the term that we use perhaps from a scholar's standpoint or sort of as a working group. But yes, when we talk with families, when we build teams to address this, we often talk more about adherence and we talk about it in more positive terms, um, rather than such a loaded right. yeah. word. It's kind of two, two sides of the same coin. Exactly. So, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so you mentioned this position paper, and if you go to the website, I'll put it up and make it available for people. So if you go to ghccpod.com, you can find uh, this paper, and there will be some other things we talk about, like this presentation that we actually keep referencing. All of this you can find there. So go to the website, and you can check it out. So moving on from definition, what do we know about kind of the scale of the problem here? Yes. So pretty early on, we also did something um, that we called the Global Survey on Treatment Abandonment. And we were able to survey more than 100 countries around the world and provide multiple providers uh, within those countries and ask them about, uh, you know, how frequently is treatment abandonment happening in your center. And what we were able to find out after sort of, you know, the the survey had a lot more information than this, but the the highlight is that um, treatment abandonment affects um, one in seven children around the world, at least. So that's a prevalence of about 15%. And what the interesting thing is that that's exactly the same number that we find when we when we did a meta-analysis as well. So we had two ways of looking at the same question that gave us the same number at the end. So this means, um, you know, 15% of children um, is a lot. And in, to put the numbers in context, uh, the, the total number of children that this means is the same number of children that we see with cancer in what we call the high-income countries. So if, if this is like... a you know, if all the children in the U.S. and Canada and Europe and Australia with cancer would die, that is sort of the number of children every year that are dying just as a result of treatment abandonment. You're saying every child that is diagnosed, diagnosed. with cancer. Yeah, of and course. Every, then if you... And you add them together from every high-income country. Mm-hmm. We're losing more kids just in the course of treatment in so-called low- and middle-income countries than mm-hmm. all the kids who are diagnosed with high-income countries exactly. or in high-income countries. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so that is a big number. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, we would not, we would never allow to happen uh, here. And so we, as a global community, need to figure out how to address this. Um, because if we want all children with cancer to have a chance of cure, this is one of the things that we need to start working on yeah. very rapidly. Yeah, I actually, so I read this paper and I remember the first time I encountered it being put this way, because, you know, I knew the numbers. Okay, that's great. But, you know, I read it and said, Every child that I, you know, in a high-income country, like that's how many we lose to treatment. I just sat back in my chair and just sat there for a second because the weight of that is just, I'm incredibly powerful. So so now that we know a bit about um, the kind of burden of abandonment around the world, uh, how do we begin to find answers or begin to approach this problem? 
Yeah. So one of the things um, that we've realized is, and going back to sort of the, the treatment abandonment being such a loaded question and all of that, but one of the things that we talk about is uh, sort of figuring out how to get a family to accept treatment and um, comply with treatment and help them and support them through that process is really one of the pieces of the puzzle of quality patient care. Um, and so, yes, we tend to think of quality in terms of our processes and having access to the medications and all of that, but actually supporting the family through the process is another piece of quality as well. And it's the way that we can truly be patient-centered and 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 some of these things are are therefore so important. So we tend to focus a lot on that sort of early access to uh, care, and then uh, how to make sure we can get we can explain things to the point that pa- families can consent to care, and then at the same time support the family so that they understand that uh, treatment throughout is important. Because one of the things that we've seen is that of course the children arrive to the hospital very sick. And then you give some chemotherapy and some of them get better. But actually, cancer treatment often requires many, many months, uh, additional months of therapy. And that is a time point where the child is starting to finally look well, but it's very challenging for the family to understand why you need to continue therapy. For diseases like leukemia, you have to continue therapy for two and sometimes three years while the child looks great and it's going to school and, and you know, going to the clinic is such a big burden. and the days that of missed work and all of that. So we actually need to make sure that we see that that it's actually throughout that whole continuum of care. We need to think at the beginning, towards the middle, towards the end, how do we support families so that they can adhere to treatment? So it's kind of the idea, just like giving a chemotherapy correctly at mm-hmm. the correct rate, at the correct dose, all of that. At the same time, we need to provide care correctly so that people can make it all the way through this gauntlet that's two or three mm-hmm. years. Yeah, exactly. So that's a good way to couch it in terms of quality. That makes a lot of sense. I think here the 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 point is um we in those of us that have been working on treatment abandonment have seen some of the clinics be able to address it to the point that numbers have gone down from 50 60% of treatment abandonment to you know 1 2 3% which is uh amazing an amazing trajectory but one thing that we haven't tackled in this working group and that I'm hoping that we will in the future is the fact that compliance is not just about accepting treatment, consenting, and showing up to your appointments, that there's a lot of care that's delivered in the home, including oral chemotherapy. And then if, if we know that treatment abandonment, uh, sort of in its most dramatic form, which is not ever coming back for treatment to the hospital, um, if that happens with, with such high frequency, you can only imagine um, what it is in terms of actually taking all the medications that you have to take. And so in the U.S., uh, we have some data that shows us that even a 5% deviation in medicines that you have to take all the time, uh, chemotherapy that you have to take on a daily basis, starts affecting your chance of cure. And so for that, when I saw that, the first time that I saw this paper, uh, we were all in shock from the perspective of high-income countries. You know, how is it possible that in a treatment that, in, that has so many IV drugs and has so much uh, multidisciplinary care and all of that, that this oral chemo, that a 5% deviation in an oral chemotherapy throughout your two-year treatment course can has, ha, have such an impact on your chance of cure? And of course, we were all shocked with that. And, and then I'm immediately my second aftershock was like, 
oh my goodness, you know, if this is happening in high income countries, in high uh, resource setting, can you imagine uh, the challenges of adherence to an oral chemotherapy in low and middle income countries? So if, you know, if treatment abandonment is 15%, adherence to oral chemotherapy, who knows, 50%? <laughs> so I don't know, we haven't even started thinking about this. Um, but the only reason I usually, I now have started bringing it up when I talk about treatment abandonment is because um, the pediatric oncology units that have managed to decrease their treatment abandonment rate, uh, we first have to congratulate them. And two seconds later, we have to challenge them to think about how we're going to make sure that patients are adhering to all components of therapy, including oral chemotherapy. That makes sense. So really abandonment, uh, you can conceptualize it upon a spectrum mm -hmm. of sub-abandonment would be adherence, I guess mm -hmm. is what you're calling it, which has a clinical impact, which has an outcomes impact in terms of will the child be cured. Mm -hmm. But then beyond that, the abandonment is kind of the extreme end extreme of non-adherence. Exactly. Ah, that helps a lot. And yeah. so that's where we started with that extreme, but I think there's a lot of work to be done. Okay, I got you. So we've talked about abandonment as part of the process of um, good quality care. So along over time, how you provide good quality care. And we've talked about it in terms of a spectrum. Um, but can we think of it in terms of on the ground where the care is being given? Like, how do you formulate abandonment in the setting of a, a busy hospitals in some lower middle income country where there's a lot of things going on? Yes. So that is, I think, the, the big challenge. And the first part um, starts with understanding why it happens. So you, to be able to address it, you need to understand why. And I think, you know, some of those initial papers uh, that we, and, and so those, some of those initial studies that we produced put a lot of emphasis on what are sort of those patient-related factors. What, you know, how, what is the parental education? You know, have the parents been to school or not? What is the socioeconomic status of the patient? What is the, you know, what's their gender? What's their age? And things like that. But I think as, as, as we've learned more about this over the years, we've realized that it's not just about um, the patient or the parent. There are some components that deal with family dynamics, for example, and culture and beliefs and the center and whether the center has good capacity to explain these things and has the time and has the, the workforce to sit, you know, however long it takes, half an hour, an hour, two hours, three hours, five hours, 10 hours to talk with the family to explain. It's not convince them, it's explain what's going on. So that they fully feel like they understand why that you know what is the diagnosis, why the child needs all of this, and so we've learned that the center's capacity to do that um, matters a lot as well. And finally, we've also learned that um, the whole context of the country or the the situation can matter as well. And one one very concrete way in in which it matters is, for example, universal healthcare coverage. So if you don't have insurance to pay for treatment, and you live on two, four, five, six dollars a day, uh, it is it is actually it is impossible. It, it is sort of it it is a it is a catastrophe in the sense that your child is going to die, but it's also often an, a financial catastrophe for the family. Even, even in, the, in, in the early stages of just a diagnostic um, components. So we've realized that it's uh, more and more we need to sort of take, you know, make sure we're always taking blame away from the family. This is uh, if a family decides to abandon treatment, if you, if you go a little bit beyond the surface, you will realize 
that it's not because the parents don't love their child and it's not because the parents don't want their child to live and succeed is because there's a series of complexities that start with socioeconomics but go very deep beyond that um and and you actually need to be able to to acknowledge all of those and help the family work through them and we're, and now what we've also learned is that we need to start also working with governments and institutions to make sure that there's no policies that encourage or somehow promote treatment abandonment and that there is financial risk protection for the families that encounter a diagnosis like this one so this is a pretty nuanced view of what abandonment is. Yes. It's, it's this multi-level... <laughs> many, many layers. Yeah, you have the patient level, like you said, and so factors associated with the patient, with the family, with the center where they're at and where the care is being provided, but then really within the larger context of the, uh, of the country, too, and how all those factors are compressed down to the level where the patient is being treated. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, very complex phenomenon. Yeah, very complex. And so when you were talking... The image that kind of appeared in my head was that abandonment kind of acts like a two-way mirror in some ways, in that no matter which way you look through it, you see through it, right? So say a, a medical provider is looking at this phenomenon of abandonment, and they're trying to find out why. And so they look at the mirror, and you can see through it in that there are some factors related to the patients and related to the families that you know probably need to be addressed. But then also, it reflects back on you that we really need to reflect on how we provide care. So thinking about it that way, when you present this kind of uh, framework, do people, do people accept it? Is there some resistance to, to this view? Or I don't know, how does it hit people? Yeah, I think things have changed over the years. Uh, I think now we have a lot more acceptance of this. Um, even when I started, um, there was a lot of, People didn't necessarily want to talk about this. Uh, they didn't want to show numbers uh, of, of this happening. And and they didn't necessarily want to see their own role in, you know, or or even consider how, how might we contribute to this? Like, how might our... we? Of course, people that go into pediatric oncology are people that are so dedicated, that have sort of a passion for these children. And to actually think that we as, um, as a workforce or we as institutions that deal... Um, with child health could be contributing to this is something that a lot of people didn't want to think about it at first. They didn't want to hear about it, uh, that we would have a role. So th- for a while, this was very centered on the family. And the the blame was like, well, the family, you know, they're poor, they have seven other children, so they think it's fine to let this one die. And every time I hear that, I just, I want to burst because I don't think that's ever true. I, I, it doesn't matter how many children a family has. I can assure you that every child life matters. We know that this is true for all children, whether they have cancer or not. So usually I see more, uh, you know, when a family has to leave treatment, yes, because they have seven other children that they need to, and they cannot lose their job and they cannot sell their house. They're doing it as a conscious decision. They're still suffering through that. And we cannot normalize that and think that it's okay. And so, so we did a lot of work, uh, and and the thing we've you know we've just talked and talked and talked about this until many many centers have started to realize that yes, there's a lot that we as providers, we as institutions, we with the work of foundations, local foundations that provide housing and transportation and supports, we can actually flip that coin and and really create the opportunity for the family to stay and see their child thrive, which is what they want. It's always what they want. Yeah, that seems to be the key is seeing it as a, a 
a community effort, a we effort. It's the patient, it's the medical providers, mm-hmm. it's the entire community that's in this together. So, yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. And then we kind of waded into this a little bit. And I, it, this is a little dry, but I think it needs <laughs> to be done if you really want to understand this topic, is that you mentioned the idea of semantic chaos around abandonment. Yes. That there are other uh, other terms that get thrown in um, when you start to try to peel through the layers of why this is happening. Mm-hmm. So can you differentiate some of these terms that you mentioned? Uh, yeah. What, what are relevant for people to think about that is not abandonment, but kind of looks like it? <laughs> so, yeah. So, men, you know, some, a lot of the terms have to do with noncompliance, non-adherence, um, things like that. And, of course, these are sort of just multiple ways of talking of the same thing. Um, but there are some clear distinctions. And so when we say treatment abandonment, we usually, you know, going back to where we started talking, this is sort of missing uh, or foregoing curative therapy at a time point where you could still um, achieve disease control if you stay. So that's sort of the, and that's why if you stop curative therapy altogether or refuse it up front, that's sort of the hardest definition of treatment abandonment. But there are some others. Uh, One is sort of interrupted treatment, and we see this all the time. There's families that abandon treatment but then come back. And so at that point, this becomes more interrupted treatment. Um, There's also premature hospital discharge, which is sort of they really need to stay in the hospital for for much longer, but they need to actually they, they go against medical advice. So that doesn't that's not really the same as treatment abandonment. There's something else we call sort of a profile of inconsistency, which is sort of this non-compliance. You, you come, but then you always come a day late or you come a little, you, you take your medicines, but you don't take them. And it's sort of, but the problem with this irregularity, as I was talking about before, is that it does matter. It adds up. Um, and then finally, loss of data or, and and this is basically, um, which is different from tinamabana. So if, if a patient does not come for follow-up after, after they've, finished treatment, those patients um, have the same risk of relapse of, as a patient that did finish treatment. And so they, they've they actually, that's more sort of a statistical thing, like we you know, lost to follow-up, um, and that should not be counted as treatment abandonment. Treatment abandonment should always be a, about um, if that pattern of um, non-adherence or inconsistency in treatment has a true chance of affecting the cure rate, the, the likelihood of cure of the child. That's what I'm, Because that's what we want to prevent. We want to make sure every child has a good chance of cure. Uh, so if we see any, any of those uh, in between, we then have sort of ways to define it. And this is really more a statistical thing. And, that, and I agree with you, it's sort of dry. Like, who, who cares? We only care maybe when we're writing papers. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, what we want is to build the systems around um, so that p- patients and families can stay engaged with treatment. Yeah, absolutely. But it is important because, as you said, if, if there are healthcare professionals listening yes. who want to do research in this area, they should know that really they need yes. to slice this pretty. We have definitions precisely. and we know how to address them um, and, and how to actually make a you know a data set makes sense. I yeah. guess. Yeah, that makes sense because you said that there there are statistical reasons why, right? Yes. And actually, so somebody said of you yesterday something that I could only dream of someone saying one day is that you and your colleagues through this effort have changed statistics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so you've altered somewhat how we do survival analysis. So go ahead and please tell us about that because that's just phenomenal. So I guess, and, and I, I think we're still in diapers in this. We still need to make a lot more changes uh, to sort of fully understand and fu- fully model how this will work. But bottom line is when you're doing survival analysis, um, this is uh, uh, the 
The way we measure this has to do with sort of your probability of having an event, then having an event, and then the time as well. And so what matters here is to the, the, the two things that, that matter. Uh, when we do statistic, uh, survival analysis for all sort of childhood cancers, um, one thing that we do this because we can't start studies, all everyone shows up today, starts the study, everyone leaves, you know, finishes in two years, and then we measure. We actually need to take into account that patients come at different time points, and that some patients have had a two-year follow-up, and others have had a four-year follow-up. So to adjust to some of these things, that's why we do it based on the probability rather than the rate. And But the biggest issue with that um, is that the survival analysis assumes that the patients lost to follow-up are at the same, are well represented by the patients that stay on follow-up. And that means that your risk of relapse or your risk of having an event is the same, whether you you stay in the cohort that be, that's being monitored or not. And that is just fundamentally not true if you've experienced treatment abandonment or these sort of patterns of inconsistency that we've been talking about. Because what we were saying before is that that we know that your risk of death is much higher if if that has happened. So what we ended up doing is really uh, was again sort of going starting with the extreme, and that's that this is what I think we still need to improve. Going to the extreme of saying, well, every child that abandons treatment, we're going to count in our statistic as a patient that will you know is at, has died or has um, you know it's at very high risk of death. And the reason we, we were able to do this at the beginning is because most patients that abandon treatment usually don't come back. There's only about a third that come back. And if they come back, they usually come back with pretty extensive disease and die. So um, so the, the patients that uh, when we do survival analysis and we, we expect the patients to do as well, you know, the patients that we're monitoring to do as well uh, or as badly as the patients that we don't monitor, that's something that's not true when treatment abandonment occurs. And the reason that's we when we tried this definition where we say if a patient abandons treatment if from a biostatistics standpoint, we're going to take it as a patient that has died. That's a very extreme way of d- doing the counts. But when we looked at, you know, can, does, does this work? Um, do we have enough evidence to, to do this? One is that most patients that abandon treatment do so relatively early in the co- course of treatment. So this means they probably will die of disease. And second, that the that the patients that do come back after treatment abandonment usually do so with wet, very wide um, disease, very spread disease, and often more um, harder to treat disease. And so even though this is a very sort of strict or hardcore way of doing it, um, it works. And so for now, what we've done uh, in the SIO PODC working group is sort of recommend that um, people do the survival analysis in two ways. One, um, not taking paying attention to treatment abandonment the way we usually do. And second, um, doing it in such a way that all the patients that abandon treatment are counted as deceased. This actually gives you two perspectives, and this is what, what usually sort of then matters. We always say if you're evaluating your protocol, whether your treatment works, it's fine to do it that first way. Um, but if you really want to understand what's happening with your population, you actually need to incorporate treatment abandonment in the survival analysis, and you actually then need to count those patients with their most likely outcome, which is death. And so that gives you sort of these two parameters, and probably the truth is in the middle. The, you know, it's not so extreme. Not every single patient that abandons treatment uh, does not 
always, always, always die. Um, but the, the, those are sort of the parameters. And I think over time, hopefully we will have better statistics and better modeling for, for how, how to actually count some of these. The other thing that has improved, and this is sort of a time we, we started these definitions very early. The other thing is that now that we do tracking um, and that we've encouraged so much tracking, we often actually do know the patients that abandon treatment, if they come back or not, and if they're deceased or not. In the past, when we were not tracking as well, every patient that uh, abandoned treatment. We never actually heard. We didn't try to track down if they were doing better, if they went somewhere else. So this was sort of a, a harder, harder time. I think now and in the future, we will improve this even further. Yeah, that was a great explanation. And I know this can be hard to yes. get the first time around. So that was incredible the way you explained it. Um, if you want to see this in visual form, then again, go to the website because I have her presentation mm -hmm. up and she walks through all of this because this is super, super important if you really want to get a good handle on uh, the rates of abandonment at you know a particular center. So this is very important. So, so we've walked through um, the definition. We've mm -hmm. walked through the uh, the burden of abandonment and the numbers that we know about. Um, and then we've walked through several different ways about how to how to kind of conceptualize it in terms of quality, um, in terms of a spectrum from adherence to the extreme end being abandonment, and then in terms of this nested view of uh, patient family. Uh, medical center and context. All right. And then we, we talked about some of the statistics, uh, the statistical considerations. rather. Mm -hmm. So is there any, uh, I don't know, what am I missing? What, what, <laughs> what else needs to be said? You've come a long way. Well, I think what's missing is what hopefully you'll hear from some of the other people that spoke yesterday. Um, because I think that's sort of the, the, the even more, um, more important piece. I, we as a working group felt that it was important to develop these definitions. It was important to raise awareness and come up with numbers that we can use to talk about this and to leverage for these children. Um, and that because we are sort of an, a very academic um, field, that we needed to make sure we provided methods for people to incorporate this into, into their scholarly activities. However, that does not mean anything if we're not going to do something about this. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're actually, you know, today we're missing the most important part of the session yesterday, <laughs> which was sort of showing how socioeconomics matters so much and how that how if we intervene in socioeconomics, um, we can actually make a huge difference. And what does it mean to intervene in socioeconomics? It means providing things as simple as housing, transportation and food. You, you provide that to a family and that already increases dramatically the chance that they'll stay on treatment. Um, but then also you're hopefully going to hear about the things of trust and uh, communication and workforce and some of the other pieces that are so important and that are things that we can actually change and we can act on. We can change the way we do deliver care within institutions. We can change the way we think about this, the way we talk about it, the way we talk about it with parents. Um, and those are the things I think that are that are the most important, what to do about this. And so I'm really excited that this is happening and that my colleagues are going to be able to explain some of those. Yeah. Because that's where the money is. Yeah. So stay tuned in future episodes. We are going to feature some of these, uh, some of her colleagues who presented yesterday so that we can go in depth into more of these topics. Yes. Okay. Very good. Well, I think that's a good place to stop our conversation on abandonment for the day. I think we have a good foundation and we're going to build on that over the next few episodes. So in the last little segment, I want to just hear from you um, 
there are other healthcare professionals who are interested in this area and global oncology, whether they're in resource limited settings or in high income countries. Um, and they want to produce scholarly work in this area. So walk us through a little bit about your career, how you kind of got to the, the place you are now to be doing the things that you, uh, you are now. Yes. So I was very lucky, I guess. Um, I, I'm one of those that knew uh, what they wanted to do when they were like 16. So I knew I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. Um, and I, as I was, I think, telling you at some point yesterday, you know, after the, the, the meeting, um, I think my career path makes a lot of sense in retrospect. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you the things that make it obvious what I'm doing today. Uh, but I can only say that it wasn't as obvious kind of during the process. So um, I am a childhood cancer survivor. And, and so and we were, I was diagnosed um, when we were living in Mexico. And we then had to actually we I, you know, I'm very aware that I'm alive because I, I was very lucky to be in a family with a health insurance that allowed me to leave Mexico and be treated in one of the best centers in the United States and achieve cure. And my family had the, uh, you know, my family's not a high, um, we're not a high resource family. They were not a rich family, but we had sort of those basic resources. Uh, and we, you know, my whole family mobilized to make this happen. And so I'm always very aware of that. And I think I grew up very aware of that. And so I think that probably made me to some extent become a pediatric oncologist and know very early on that I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. But then I'm also, I come from a very international family. My dad's German, my mom's Puerto Rican. I was born in Mexico. Um, so then I actually, you know, and I got, I got into pediatric oncology for the reason many of us in the U.S. or um, get into, I loved molecular biology and I loved genes and oncogenes. And so I, you know, when I first got into pediatric oncology, it was for the love of science. But as I got through medical school and pediatrics and sort of residency, I started struggling with, was I really going to be a lab scientist? You know, what, what about sort of the rest of the world? And I had grown up uh, hearing from my mom that I was a child of the world, that I needed to actually, you know, I was a citizen of the world, that I needed to contribute someone, somehow. And so I struggled, um, you know, as I was applying for fellowship. And, you know, for those of you that have applied for residency or fellowship, these are challenging times. You have to prove yourself. You have to show that you know what you want to do. And sometimes you're not, you know, that was the first time that I struggled. Do I want to go to a lab? Do I want to, you know, some people were starting to do clinical research. Um, global health as a thing uh, was kind of very early uh, in terms of pediatric oncology. And so I struggled a lot with that. With that. Um, and ultimately, I actually found a little bit about what St. Jude was doing and some, some of the other teams that were working abroad. And I traveled to a few places to see what this meant. And ultimately, I decided, yes, this is what I, what I want to do. And um, I decided I wanted to stay at a, at a big academic institution and make it a, an, a, an academic career. Because when I started, a lot of the people that were doing this were doing as a voluntary work. Uh, so you, you build your career, and on your free time, you contribute to global health. Um, and so for me, that was, a, you know, there were challenging times, but at the same time, I was very lucky. Um, because uh, so when I was at training at Dana-Farber, and then Carlos Rodriguez Galindo, my sort of primary mentor, came and... And we had to prove to everyone that, that I could, you know, that there was a way to make this an academic career. 
I think the what I would tell, what I would say to people that are getting into sort of this now is that all careers are difficult. Um, no matter, it doesn't matter the specialty, all careers are difficult. And doing what you love is what matters. And if you really love this, you will figure out a way. For me, it was sort of at first, I didn't, I knew I wanted to do this, but I didn't know where and how. And if you start talking with enough people about it and you start finding about how they did it, uh, ultimately you figure out a way. For me, the, the sort of the path ended up being, I, you know, I got, got on to do this because of the science. Then I sort of had the question about the international work. I finally decided I wanted to do global health. Um, then I was lucky enough that Carlos came to be a mentor. And from there on, um, I just started working and doing things. And, and that's how you get it done. Work you just, and do things. We, you work and you do it. And you it. show people that, that it can be done. Okay. And that's the way. Uh, yeah, that's that, what I would say. Just keep trying until okay. you get it done. Oh, and did you have any adjunctive uh, technical training like MBH yes. or... Yeah, so that was the piece that, um, yes, as I was doing my fellowship, I ended up doing an MPH because I think one of the key things to succeed in, in, in any career, again, sort of, especially in, the, in science, is that you need to be very good from a concepts standpoint. So for us, it's sort of the clinical piece. You need to be a good clinician, but then you also need to be very good from a method standpoint. And so for me, that was sort of getting an MPH and digging deep with every project that I did. Um, not being wishy-washy about the methods, but actually learning the methods well. And I think that that's very important. So for, for me, yes, how, uh, doing an MPH was a, an important way to make this successful. Got it. So do things, work hard, and be methodologically sound. Yes. Is that fair? Yes. <laughs> okay, excellent. <laughs> very, very good. Um, well, I thank you so much for your time. This has been incredible. So thanks for sitting down with us and talking today. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you, is there a way they can well uh all of our emails are you know uh, uh, googleable uh so just look me uh you know i work at saint jude and my name is paola friedrich so it's paola.friedrich at saintjude.org well thank you so much paola i appreciate you thank you bye if you want to find out more about treatment abandonment about its causes and how to address it then feel free to email paola at the email address she just gave or you can email me you can find me at info, I-N-F-O, at ghccpodpod.com. And if you're a healthcare worker and want to get involved in addressing the root causes of abandonment, then check out the PSYOP PODC Treatment Abandonment Working Group. So you have to go to www.cure4, the number 4, kids, K-I-D-S, dot com, and you have to make a free username and password, and then go to the Groups tab and search for the Treatment Abandonment Group. You have to be approved to join the group, but then afterwards you can see all the resources that we've gathered and the different projects going on within the group. So feel free to check it out. While you're at the Care for Kids website, if you want to learn more about abandonment, there's actually a curriculum. So if you go to the education tab, go down to curriculum, then you can find the treatment abandonment curriculum that was put together a few years ago. And if you want to find out more about what's going on in global pediatric oncology in general, then head over to cancerpointpointe.com and check out all the resources that we have available. We have training programs for physicians in low- and middle-income countries. We have experts who are available to be consulted about difficult cases, about research, about making abstracts and assistance with writing. 
We have the adapted treatment regimens from the PSYOP PODC adapted treatment working group. And we have various lectures about supportive care from the nursing and supportive care working groups. And we also publish interesting things going on in the world of global pediatric oncology. So if you want to find out what's going on, come visit us. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.